Hello, folks, and welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. This is Ed Fallon, your host, and we're coming to you from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. So there. Hey, if you value what we do, we could sure use your support. Visit the uh, donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or run a nonprofit doing good work, consider becoming a sponsor. And speaking of sponsors, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, that's Central Iowa's premier good food store, bringing together the world's, food, the world's finest products with Iowa-grown foods and passionate personalized service. If you're looking for quality foods with a community focus, check out Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis. Contact David Drake, FamilyPsychiatry.com. And speaking of culture, thanks to the Des Moines Irish Session for providing our bumper music. You can experience a traditional Irish jam session somewhere in the Des Moines metro every Tuesday. All right, folks. Well, we've got Mark Klipsch joining us on the phone today. Mark, how are you? I am uh, just peachy. That's peachy. What I would say. All right, peachy's peachy's um peachy's better than some of the options. And uh, you you want we wanted to talk about the woke phenomena today. And uh, man, no matter what side of the political spectrum you come at it from, I think we can fairly accurately call it a phenomena. It has certainly garnered a lot of attention. Why don't we start with you giving us your take on, quote, what it means to be woke, and uh, then we'll go back and forth and see where this takes us. I just heard Elvis Costello the other day asking, what's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? And, uh, yeah, I, I, I was, you know, we had, I had some time to think about this, and I was going, who, who in, quote, unquote, history or even current times, it seems like the Pope is kind of woke, which is strange for my basic understanding. Uh, Jesus, I think, was probably the most notable woke person, and strangely, the quote-unquote anti-woke crowd seemed to be aligned with Jesus and Christianity, so it gets really confusing after a while. Okay, so now that you've given us examples of woke people, define woke. Maybe it's like that pornography thing. I can probably tell you what it is, isn't first or better, and that is, uh, or or the other side being, uh, I find this threatening, and what you are suggesting is a threat to, quote-unquote, my, our very way of life, which seems to be an institutionalized prejudice, bigotism, bigot uh, uh, phobias, that kind of thing, or a way of doing business that, that would be harmful to the environment, but that's what we've done and we've always done, and now you're suggesting something else that's a threat to us, and so we're going to label that as woke, as a derisive comment, you know, kind of like saying you're a liberal or you're a pinko commie or something like that. It's this wonderfully undefined but the term, term no, no, I know. But the term initiated on the political left, and again, the toward the toward the uh, the extreme end of the uh, political left, uh, that that's where the term comes from. People say, "Hey, wait, 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 you know, wait, we, we you, towards the what political left? The political left. Just, I mean, that's where the term originates. Woke meaning, uh, uh, aha! I realize that there is 
there's great racism in this country. There's great uh, uh, discrimination against women, against uh, other constituency groups that have been marginalized. I am woke to that problem, and I'm going to do something about it. That's my understanding of where the term originated. And yet, of course, when the right comes at the at the at the at the the concept, it kind of redefines it sometimes really badly. But it becomes a whole different sort of uh, conversation piece than maybe the folks who initially started talking about racism, discrimination, sexism, it becomes a whole different conversation than it was intended to at first. It's a reaction, and a reaction uses a bludgeon. In the Bible, they talked about, not talked about, talks about signs, you know, and observing the signs, and if you don't observe the signs, you're kind of asleep at the wheel. You're not paying attention to what's going on. So I look at what's going on in the world. I mean, climate change is happening. We need to do something about the signs. So uh, I guess caring about the environment and beyond climate change, you know, sure. plastic in the oceans, this kind of thing. So woke, it, it seems like common sense. I mean, it's just self-survival. If you don't pay attention to these things and you keep doing our very way of life, I guess you're asleep. I- well, here's, you know, my, my I, have, I have problems with both sides of the conversation when it comes to woke. I mean, my, again, my problem with the right is they're using it as a political bludgeon. That's a good way to describe it. Uh, you know, they're exaggerating. Uh, they're, they're distorting the meaning of, of, uh, of, of the, the, the intention of the folks who initiated the conversation. To try yeah. to, to try to continue to divide and conquer, but the folks who, you know, some of those who have uh, embraced the 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 term woke, use it kind of as a holier than thou moment, and instead of um, instead of you know, I think really attacking the root problems that underlie discrimination and inequality in this country, then they start using it as a badge of honor and a and a way to. Um, in their own way, bludgeon people who yeah. don't see that yeah. eye to eye with them. So, I, to me, yeah. it's a, to me it's a problematic uh, occurrence on both sides of the political aisle for different reasons. Well, and, and there, there's a common thread in politics seems to be if you really sat down with quote unquote the people on the other side, you'd find out uh, minus very specific verbiage, you probably have the same goals. I want my children to have a healthy, good place to live and be happy. Okay, well, I think that's quote-unquote what they want, too. Uh, how do we get there? You know, is it televisions and cotton candy, or is it clean water and, mm, I don't know, wheatgrass juice? I don't know. <laughs> I hope but not. Take, <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go with the clean water, but I think I'll take a pass, hard pass on yeah, the wheatgrass what, juice. What, thanks. That's just it. It becomes extreme. That's my point. It's like, I don't want regret wheatgrass juice either, but I would like to be able to swim in Iowa. Does that make me woke? I look at what causes. I'm paying attention yeah. to the signs which cause our water to be filthy. Well, I mean, I, I think the problem is that the, the, the detractors on the right have made, quote, woke into a joke. Uh, it's 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 like it's, it, it allows them to dismiss legitimate concerns that come from other yeah. points on the political perspective, like you mentioned, clean water, uh, racism, um, equal pay for women. I mean, all sorts of different concerns. But, you know, I, I think the problem is the folks who promote the woke philosophy believe that, oh, hey, 
I just, uh, I, I, it, suddenly I just woke up. I, I understood this all of a sudden. And people from past generations, or even maybe just a year or two ago, uh, who aren't on the same page as I am, uh, are less than I am in terms of their, their awareness, their understanding, their enlightenment. So, you know, I, I, I wish the whole thing would go away myself. I, I'd love to see woke and mega both go away. I think they, they, ne, neither are helpful. It's another uh, trendy thing. Like, let's see, what's the what's the word that's used all the time? Not obviously. Uh, uh, oh, of course, I'm not going to remember it right now. Uh, there's a line out of Fourth Tower of Inverness that said, "Speak to every man according to their understanding and their rate to understand it." And yeah, unfortunately, right now, kind of put everything off the table. By the time everybody, quote unquote, becomes woke, it will be past the time that we really need that. The, the, the fires in Canada right now, it's not an issue until it affects me, but we're protected. So, yeah, we've been living the life. And about the time we understand that there really is an issue here being woke, mm. uh, it's too late. We're the last ones, you know, like. Uh, they came yeah. for the priests, or excuse me, they came for the Jews. I didn't pay attention. They they did this. The water was bad. The temperature rose. It didn't affect me. It didn't affect me. Now it affects me, and I'm the last group to be affected, right. and there, there's nothing to do now. It's too late. Yeah, you're, so, refer, you're, you're referring, I believe, to the uh, the maxim regarding the rise of Nazism in Germany. First they right, came right, for the right. Catholics. Then they, and I wasn't Catholic, so I didn't respond. Then they came for the socialists. I wasn't a socialist, so I didn't respond. Right. Well, this is climate change, and it's kind of the same thing. Well, it's, it's affecting people in India. It's affecting people mm. in Africa. You know, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me. Mm. Oh, gee, now we can't breathe in New York City. Yeah. Now it's important. So let me ask you, Mark. Well, this is, this wake is, up, people. <laughs> this is, for me, this is the... This is the last conversation I ever hope to have in this program about woke. Sure. Uh, what I'd like to do is have conversations about what the woke uh, language is trying to call attention to. I'd like to have more conversations. I mean, we do have these conversations all the time, but I'd like to continue to have conversations about racism. I'd like to continue to have conversations about, about equality for women, uh, about, about the issues you, certainly about the issues you've raised about, about climate change about the things that we should be paying attention to. Don't call it woke. That, that's, that's a word that's gone off the rails. It's just, it's, just, it's just become a hot button for the right to, like, make hay on. And it's a, what they've done is ridiculous. And it's a way to dismiss all of it with, with, a, with a big brush. So the way you it's get like, around... Oh, that's, that's part of woke, yeah. so none of it's important. And, and, but, but, the, but the irony is it's like, it's like poking holes in the bottom of your boat because you love water or something, I don't know, bad analogy, but it's like, guys, I don't know what you're defending. These are issues that affect all of us. It's like we're self-destructive, and, and, and oh, I, Ed, I'm, yeah. I'm, I don't have a real positive outlook right well, now. Well, again, you know, I, I think uh, just, 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 stop, just stop playing into the right wing's ability to the far right, you know, and I, I, I think I, when I say far right, far left, I'm talking about 10% of the electorate either side of the 80% majority in this country. That regarding your earlier remark, I think there are 80% of the people in this country. You could sit down and wherever you fall in the political spectrum, 
you're a reasonable person who could probably agree that, yeah, we, we, were, we come together on most of the really important issues. We have the same basic concerns. But, you know, so don't, don't keep feeding into the, the, the extremist on either side. You know, if, if, if you've coined a term that makes sense to you and then suddenly it becomes, you know, pathological in terms of its use, steer mm-hmm. away from it. Talk about what you're really trying to get to. You know, what really what woke is really trying to get to is again we've got these problems uh, we're aware of them and and we're paying attention to what damage they're doing and what we need to be doing to address them so you know and I guess we need to find the cause and not the symptoms and and I I, I hate to use the term it's a growth economy my daughter's eyes always glaze over actually she's starting to understand that so in other words they're using the term woke once again because it threatens their quote-unquote very way of life, you know, selling chemicals, selling weapons, uh, fossil fuels, this kind of stuff. So if we just fling woke at them, we can go about our way. But unfortunately, the way is leading for a waterfall with a 100-yard drop, you know. I was like, I, I, I don't get to throw woke aside. By the way, how do we get rid of that to where we get to that yeah. Well, let me they let me hear. They, they, they think they're going to go to another planet or something, well, or, or yeah, a bunker yeah. or something. It's not going to work. There is no planet to be, no. But hey, Mark, you're an Iowan, and being in Iowa, we still have half the Iowa caucuses, the Republican half, and that's the half actually that's going to be seeing lots of action. It already is, and so um, what about going to some of these Republican candidate events? And and when when Ron DeSantis rages against wokeness, um, ask him. You know, so one of the concerns that Woke has wanted to address is racism. Is there racism in the U.S., Mr. DeSantis? Mr. DeSantis you know, we, we are, or, or again about climate. You know, uh, we, we talk about the being aware of the ext- extreme impact that climate change is having and will have on us. Do you, do you agree with that? I mean, just, just do away with the, the hot button word and get to the issues that really matter. Well, I'd say like, like our, our uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, about the time we got, we invented this problem at the border. We also invented a crisis of uh, lack of employable people. Isn't that weird? It's like what what just happened here? We used to have the people from the southern hemisphere come up here, do the work, make the money, go back home. It worked. Was it legal or not? I don't know. It worked. Now all of a sudden, we don't have enough people to do the work, and we have a border crisis. What? What well, happened? Oh, by the way, why don't we stop messing with their country? To where they want to come live here because we made it so miserable there. At least Ron, at least Ron DeSantis is doing his part by putting uh, putting lots of immigrants on buses or planes and sending them to places where employees are needed. To woke to me is the connection between the, the the cause and the symptom. And if you only pay attention to the symptom, first off, you're never going to fix the cause. You're never going to fix any problem. But it turns out, Ed, that's incredibly profitable. Hmm. The most profitable thing in our country is problems, and we create them every day. So I guess that would make me woke is I want to get rid of the cause because I don't want pollution. I don't want war. I don't want riots. I just just want to live my pathetic little life. (laughs) I I observe what's causing these problems. I guess that makes me woke. And, you know, I was like monocropping from border to border by the way, violates the tenets of the Bible, which these people all tend to claim. I don't get all that either. The, the, yeah. the, I hate the word hypocrisy, but that's that's what I see it as. It's, it's they don't they don't have the big picture. I guess that's what 
or maybe they do have the big picture, but it's a totally upside down picture for what the goal is. Well, Mark, I really, I, I really appreciate, I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, I've got to run to a break. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, uh, you still have your your uh, your music show on KHOI, don't you? Absolutely, music so, very well done. So, folks, uh, yeah, Mark Clipsham, uh, architect, and also in his spare time, a great uh, host of a music program on KHOI eighty nine point one FM in Ames. Uh, I build a builder as well. I. I a dangerous person. I kind of hard to pull the wool, pull the wool over my eyes. Like, nope, that's not really what's doing that. We're not doing that. Sorry. All right. Well, Mark, thanks for joining us, uh, folks. Got to take a short break. Uh, Going to be uh, uh, back in just a minute here on the Fallon Forum. My pleasure. Gateway Market and Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks again to our sponsors, including Westrom Optometry, located in New Orleans East Village. Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. I would like now to welcome to the program Peter Lumsdane with the Physicians for Social Responsibilities Committee on the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, Peter has lectured extensively across the U.S. about U.S. foreign policy in Mexico and Iraq, also on nuclear weapons, drone warfare, and AI. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ed. Glad and, to be here. And you were recently in Ukraine, and I think our audience would be really interested to hear your perspective, your eyewitness perspective on your travels across the country relevant to the current war, and also particularly the conditions impacting people uh, in the country. Right. Uh, Well, I appreciate the invitation, and I just want to make clear that uh, for a number of years I have served on the National uh, Committee for Abolition of Nuclear Weapons in Physicians for Social Responsibility, or PSR, Um, and also I went to Ukraine in affiliation with a kind of PSR spinoff called the Zaporizhia Protection Project, which is focused on uh, trying to establish a no-conflict zone around the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. But I will make clear I am not speaking as an official spokesperson for either of those. 
Uh, I'm speaking as an independent observer. Right. So, yeah, uh, I think, you know, this is a really, really critical moment right now. We know that the fighting is escalating in Ukraine. We know that there are uh, implications throughout Europe and beyond global implications. So, um, so that's very important. And it, wherever you would like me to start, I can perhaps share some experiences and observations during the weeks that I was there in Ukraine this spring. Yeah. Well, my understanding is you talked with a pretty broad cross-section of Ukrainian people, um, miners, factory workers, uh, soldiers, government officials, uh, journalists. Uh, that's, um, uh, that's a lot of exposure right. to a lot of people dealing with uh, uh, an incredible, I mean, it's got to be, my impression is it's pr- pretty hard to imagine what life is like in Ukraine right now for somebody living in the U.S., Right. Well, you know, um, when I was there with three other colleagues uh, for part of April, which is really not so long ago, um, you know, we were not able, of course, to do a nationwide, you know, scientifically randomized public opinion survey. And in fact, I would just note that I do not think that that is possible at this point in time in Ukraine under martial law, state of emergency, wartime conditions. But as you say, Ed, we did talk to a pretty wide range of people. We were uh, arrived in Warsaw, Poland, where there are many, many Ukrainian refugees or mm. displaced people, mm-hmm. and traveled um, by bus, actually, because the airspace over Ukraine is closed, to Kiev or Kiev, um, and also then on to Dnipro and the city of Zaporizhia and uh, the town of Maranets, which is right. Uh, on the edge of the reservoir, which is now draining. Uh, it's a manganese mining town across the reservoir from the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, the Zaporizhia mm. nuclear power plant, and the countryside in between. So you're right. We did talk to a range of people. We tried to, I can certainly speak for myself, I tried to go in with an open attitude and to listen to what uh, that range of Ukrainian folks had to say. And I will just footnote that, you know, 20 years ago when my wife and I went to um, Iraq, uh, just a few weeks or months after the U.S. occupation began there, we also tried to go in with that attitude to listen, to not have preconceptions, to hear what Iraqis had to say. So in Ukraine uh, this spring, I think that a couple of key points that um, came out to me, and, you know, we were in Zaporizhia Oblast, which is now the center of this really intensely escalated fighting. Um, We were very close to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. We were on the edge of what is called the red zone, the Ukrainian military declared uh, off-limits area. And I think that one of the things that really struck me uh, was the paradox of this situation in April. It's a bit different now, uh, insofar as the fact that, yes, of course, the country is at war, the country's under martial law. It has been since February of 2022. And yet, in the commercial centers of Kiev or Kiev, in Dnipro, in the city of Zaporizhia, these are all large cities, hundreds of thousands of people, you know, there was this really bustling commercial mm, okay. vibe. You know, I mean, the shops were open, the bars were open, the restaurants were open, there were a lot of people on the streets. We were there during a lull in airstrikes, so we didn't actually, we saw buildings that had been hit and damaged, but we were not actually uh, there at a time when airstrikes were happening. So one, and I think that the, that the, the opposing forces
forces, and particularly the Ukrainian military, was gearing up for the offensive that's now happening. So, one, so one, it was a very paradoxical situation. Go ahead. Ed. One, one so. question for you. I, I, we know that there is a Russian peace movement, that within Russia, there are people pushing mm-hmm. for an end to this war. Uh, is there any kind of a similar peace movement in Ukraine? Well, you know, Ed, that is a really, really excellent question. And it's a question that I find is rarely asked in uh, U.S. media context. Right. And my answer to that is yes, there definitely is. And we met with a range of people. Um, I mean, I will say this, that there were Ukrainians that we met with who were definitely behind the Zelensky government, definitely behind the NATO-Zelensky war policies, thought that the only solution was uh, NATO and Ukrainian military victory. But there was a significant range of opinions, and I found it very, very interesting that there were people um, ranging from folks who had fled from uh, Russian-controlled areas and people who had relatives in the Ukrainian military to people who were explicitly part of what I would term a semi underground Ukrainian peace movement who were speaking out against the war, saying there were abuses on both sides, the violence needed to stop, we need a ceasefire now, we need uh, negotiations. So one woman we talked to in Zaporizhia city, you know, which is um, the largest city of the Zaporizhia Oblast, the center of uh, a lot of this intensified fighting right now around the reservoir uh, with the clashes between Ukrainian and Russian uh, and Russian allied military forces, you know, she said, and I'm, I'm going to leave out first, well, definitely last names and actually first names too, because it's a very dicey situation. There. Sure. Of anyway, course. she she had left Enrhodar, which is the uh, town right next to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. It was occupied by the Russian army. Um, many of the people there decided to stay, but some people decided to leave, and the Russians let them leave. It's funny, she said, as we were going on the road between the Russian-controlled, Russian-government-controlled and Ukrainian-government-controlled areas, because that's an important distinction, because the Russian government is not the same as the Russian people. Right. The Ukrainian government is not the same as the Ukrainian people. Right. But as they were going on this road from Enerhodar to Zaporizhia or Maranet, she said, you know, the Russians let us through. Sometimes they required us to pay them money. (laughs) And then we got to the Ukrainian military checkpoints, and they would let us through, but sometimes they would require us to pay money. Anyway, she came out, her sister stayed, and she said, you know, this, she, her husband is in the Ukrainian military, and yet she said, this situation right now is madness, this killing, this slaughter, we need a ceasefire. We need a ceasefire now. We need negotiations to see, not to freeze the situation as it is permanently, but to see if there's another alternative. Mm. She said, I thought this was really interesting. She said, uh, you know, this is the 21st century. We should be fighting with words and ideas and beliefs, right. not in, guns. In other, words, in, in other words, diplomacy. Diplomacy, that's yeah. correct. So this is a woman who left the Russian-controlled zone, whose sister stayed, uh, who has a husband in the Ukrainian military, and yet this is what she said. We also spoke to people, uh, interestingly enough, mostly younger people, who were part of a 
semi-underground Ukrainian peace movement who were opposed to Russian militarism, opposed to Ukrainian and NATO militarism, and wanting, again, a ceasefire, negotiations, uh, an end to forced conscription into the military. So, yes, that definitely exists in so, Ukraine, and I think it's very important for people to know that. So is there a, is I mean, I, I think not enough people, in my opinion, in the U.S. are concerned about how this conflict could escalate into some kind of a nuclear exchange. I'm guessing that perhaps being closer to Russia and closer to reality of the war, the reality of the war, maybe Ukrainian people are are more deeply and overtly concerned about the potential of a nuclear threat? Well, I think it is a huge and very consequential looming uh, catastrophe for the people of Ukraine, the people of Russia, the people of Europe, and the people of the entire northern hemisphere, and in fact the planet. And so, you know, there are people who are very ardent pro-war advocates in the U.S. press and the U.S. government who sort of brush this aside. But it's extremely, extremely important concern. So one thing I will say, I'm not speaking as an official spokesperson of Physicians for Social Responsibility. However, I will say this, that while we were in Ukraine, there was an international meeting of physicians and healthcare workers from all over the world in Mombasa, Kenya. And so PSR, Physicians for Social Responsibility, their international affiliate, IPPNW, so that's International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985, right. uh, based with U.S., Soviet, and other uh, physicians and healthcare workers. Anyway, they met this April in Mombasa, Kenya, first time they'd ever been in Africa. And there were many, many physicians and healthcare workers from the global south, as well as from the east and west of the northern hemisphere. And they issued a statement that's very significant. International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War, in meeting in Mombasa for the first time in Africa, this April, while we were in Ukraine, issued a statement calling for an immediate and unconditional ceasefire in Ukraine as an urgently needed measure to protect the people of the planet from the increasing danger of global nuclear war, and also to end the slaughter of Ukrainian people, Ukrainian troops, and Russian troops in that conflict. They also called, and I will note this, for the withdrawal of all invading forces from Ukraine. They actually so, didn't say Russian, but said all invading forces. But, but they also emphasized that the first call for an unconditional immediate ceasefire was not dependent on the second, also important mm. call for withdrawal of that, invading forces. Uh, that that so, didn't yeah, that, that didn't really significant. That didn't get a lot of play in the uh, mainstream press either, did it? Mm, not too much. No, no, no. no. I mean, IPPNW, which PSR is the U.S. affiliate of, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1985, and another closely related organization, ICANN, International Committee for Abolition of Nuclear Weapons won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017. They have a treaty uh, which has been ratified by dozens and dozens of countries all over the world for a multilateral abolition mm. and outlawing of nuclear weapons. Now, of course, the U.S. refuses to sign it. So does yeah. Russia. Wow. So does China. So does Israel, France, England, India. In other Pakistan. words, all, all the nuclear, all the all the nuclear, nuclear powers nuclear yeah. Yeah. are keeping it at arm's length. Yeah. 
But anyway, I'm saying that, that IPPNW, which met in Mombasa this April, is a very, very significant organization of international healthcare professionals. And yes, I am sorry to say, I think you're right, that there was not a lot of coverage uh, yeah. in the press about hey, that. Hey, one, one last question for you, Peter. I, I, I noticed again that, that you had, uh, you've done some speaking engagements on AI, artificial intelligence. And uh, I'm well, just yeah. curious about the extent to which um, you know, AI or other types of advanced technology might be, you know, might be playing some role one way or another in the Ukrainian conflict. Is that, uh, is that a reality that you saw when you were visiting? Absolutely. There's no question about it. And one of the most interesting people that we met was actually a Russian journalist who nevertheless uh, very, very strongly sympathized with uh, the Ukrainian cause to defend their country from the entry of Russian troops. But he had a nuanced view. He had a very nuanced view, Alexander. And uh, we met with him in Zaporizhia. And when I talked to him about the rise of what is sometimes termed algorithmic, algorithmic warfare, so in other words, employing advanced computer modeling and AI into the planning and execution of military operations, he said, oh, yeah, this is a very, very significant part of what is going on. Mm. So, so there have been articles... Uh, written by extremely eminent people, and not necessarily people who are opposed to the war, saying this is the first algorithmic warfare, where AI models are directing and, you know, more and more these drones that are being used by both sides are becoming more and more autonomous, choosing their own targets of who and where to kill. Um, Let me just say also, Ed, before we sign off here, that, you know, I am traveling this summer and autumn, as I have often before, around the U.S., particularly in the western states, but not only in the western states. And what I think is really, really important is the opportunity to have on-the-ground, in-person gatherings, talks, discussions Mm -hmm. about this. I did this in Washington, D.C. when I came back from Ukraine at the end of April, and I'm setting up talks now in Washington, Oregon, California, Arizona, North Carolina, different parts of the country. So I would strongly, strongly encourage people who might be listening to this to try to um, contact me. Uh, I think your e- my email is going to be put out. That's the best way to reach me. Uh, Tierralinda at LIVE.com. Tierra, uh, say, say it again. Tia. Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to say it really quickly okay. if anybody wants to contact me. It's in Spanish, but it's uh, Tierra Linda. That's T-I-E-R-R-A-L-I-E. N D A means beautiful earth in Spanish. Geralinda at L I V E, V is in Victor, L I V E dot com. Okay. And so if anybody's interested, I travel a lot. And if anybody's interested in setting up an in person talk, presentation, discussion, uh, slideshow about this, I'm I'm very interested in talking with them. Okay. Well, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you on your radio. Thank program. you. Peter, really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, we've been talking with Peter Lumstein with Physicians for Social Responsibilities Committee on the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons regarding his recent trip to the Ukraine. Hey, when we come take we gotta take a short break, and when we come back, folks, here on the Fallon Forum, we're gonna we got a bunch of stuff to cover. Wind energy, climate change, factories versus farms. We're gonna we're gonna kick it off with an interesting little tidbit about alien vehicles being impounded. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. 
With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Hey, thanks to our sponsors, including Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, long-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so perhaps you have also been following and intrigued by stories of alien vehicles being, well, basically impounded by the U.S. government. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> and I want to preface that with um, just pointing out that back in May, uh, Las Vegas police, Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, they investigated a possible UFO report, actually a couple of them, and that involved and partially involved a family reporting something, quote, not human in their backyard, uh, something long, 10 feet tall. Now, I'm guessing it was one of those blue creatures from Avatar, but I don't know. Uh, at any rate, um, there was some credibility to the report. And, and you know, so a, lot of these, a lot of these reports have what is deemed to be credibility. In January, um, the office of uh, the director of national intelligence who knew that there was a director of national intelligence in Washington, D.C.? Anyway, the report was that the U.S. government has received over 500 reports of unidentified aerial phenomena. That's another word for UFO, UAP in this case. That was between 2004 and 2022. Hundreds of those were from 2021. So the pace appears to be picking up. More aliens coming, more sightings. Who knows where this goes? And now uh, the most interesting thing, the newsworthy element of this, I suppose, is that David Grush, a guy who worked with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, he also worked at the National Reconnaissance Office, uh, Grush says he's aware of secret government programs that have intact and partially intact vehicles of non-human origin. And by non-human origin, he does not, he's not referring to the Tesla. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. So Grush says, he says this information has been illegally withheld from Congress. And so on his way out the door, apparently, he, you know, took the liberty to tell Congress. So 
we'll see. You know, I don't know what to make of all this. I, I would not be surprised. Actually, I would be surprised if there's not been some other species poking around our planet. I mean, it's really hard to imagine that that's not possible. And I think if you want any other proof that there's alien life on, on, on Earth, just hey, check out Ted Cruz. All right, so um, on to other um, interesting news items. Trump's indictment. Okay, so perhaps not surprisingly, Trump's indictment is leading to a huge uh, rash of um, uh, extreme commentary from people on people in his base. And apparently a poll, I'm still trying to track down a little bit more about how this poll worked, but a poll found that 4% of Americans thought violence was an okay response to uh, the crisis in our government, indicated in part by Trump's indictment. That's like 12 million people. That's, that's a little disturbing. But again, I, I want to learn more about that before I go off on it. But what I do want to go off on is some of the people who have responded to the indictment on the, the Donald's page. Uh, here's one from Bellac 186 whatever that means. Quote, the only way this country ever becomes anything like the Constitution, says this country should be, is if thousands of traitorous rats are publicly executed. And no, by rats, he does not mean, and I'm assuming, I know I'm being, I'm out of line by assuming it's a male, but um, by traitorous rats, I don't think he means rodents. So heavy metal patriot weighs in. Uh, Hans says we can borrow the Flammenwerfer, which I think means flamethrower. Um, Black Pilled Mega says doesn't have to be thousands, just a few dozen would do. People killed, talking about here. But um, Nerd Nerd Dream One, I'm not even trying to pronounce that. So he, he, again, I'm going to assume it's a guy, insists that taking out a few elites wouldn't make the difference suggest the number dead required was on, on a genocidal scale. Millions. The real problem is the people that vote for them. As long as they exist, the problem can't be solved. You know, so I don't doubt that some of these people actually exist and they really have these beliefs and they really would not mind resorting to extreme violence to get their wishes accomplished. I also wouldn't doubt that some of this could be bots, um, you know, just... Just, uh, you know, it, it doesn't, one person can manage a heck of a lot of content. So, you know, this could be a few people being ridiculous, but I'd like to believe that. I suspect it probably is indeed some pretty off-the-wall people who really mean this. And so, I, you know, I think we need to be aware. But remember that um, that after January 6th, the, 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 a lot of the violence that was predicted to follow didn't happen. So that's... That's good news. Anyway, the New York Times um, reminds us that this uh, ongoing battle over Trump's indictment is, um, you know, it's public opinion is not a sideshow is how they put it. The court case, of course, is the focal point. But how the public weighs in on this is going to be pretty important in terms of its political impact. And I'm still going to, you know, despite everything that's happening, I hope I'm wrong. But I suspect that Donald Trump is still going to win the nomination. We'll see. Uh, again, it could be worse, of course. Um, Ron DeSantis might win. Um, <laughs> I laugh because it's just incredible that a candidate like DeSantis has come as far as he has. I mean, his, um, his stand on climate change, just alone, there's so much to talk about. But on climate, just 
You know, Republicans love to talk about oh, you know, get get government out of the out of the business of uh, of, uh, of of small you know of cities of smaller units of government states. The federal government should be beating up on the states, you know, states' rights. The states shouldn't be picking on cities. Well, here he is signing a bill that prevents cities from adopting a 100% clean energy goal. <laughs> um, he also prevented the state's pension fund from investing in any entity that they might consider was, uh, you know, was friendly to climate change. They, in other words, they couldn't consider the climate crisis when they were deciding where to invest funds. And he called that a, quote, corporate attempt to impose an ideological agenda on the American people. Well, I would say that what he just did is imposing an ideological agenda on the American people, in this case, the people of Florida. You know, and he also, I mean, this is great. He also attacked the U.S. military for being, quote, woke, uh, warning because they warned about the national security risks posed by climate impacts. Um, <laughs> the guy is off the wall. You know, he's just off the wall. And to think that he is competitive in this re Republican primary, it's, it's hard to believe. And yet, uh, Ron DeSantis, quote, rejects the politicizing of the weather. Uh, and he also doubts that Florida's hurricanes have been worsened by climate change. Uh, of course, responding to that, Michael Mann, the climate scientist at the University of Pennsylvania, says, quote, it is Ron DeSantis who is engaged in the politicizing the weather, by denying basic established science, the intensification of tropical storms with human-caused warming of the oceans is, is beyond a doubt. So, again, none of these statements by DeSantis should be surprising at all. Yeah, when in his run for Congress and his run for the White House, sorry, for the governorship, he took more than one million in campaign donations from the oil and gas industry. And yes, regarding his run for the presidency last year, he accepted a $2 million donation from the Club for Growth. That's the entity that pushed uh, President Trump to, of course, bail out on the Paris Climate Agreement. Of course, I don't know what uh, Ron DeSantis says about wildfires. I'll have to ask him next time he's here in Iowa. But um, wildfires are catching folks' attention because the smoke from Canadian wildfires is causing a lot of havoc in the U.S. because of winds blowing uh, toward the south. But uh, apparently New York City had the worst air in the world uh, a while back. But now the uh, focus has shifted from fires up in Quebec over to fires up in, uh, in uh, Alberta and beyond. And if you look at uh, an air quality map, the uh, air quality in western, northwest Canada, it's just incredibly bad, incredibly bad. And there are now 450 fires burning across Canada. So some of them, actually a lot of them are still out of control. And... Um, and it's, not, it's no mystery, folks. This is due to warm and dry conditions from rising temperatures, a.k.a. global warming. You know, now in some cases, uh, you know, states have uh, been able to identify the perpetrator in a wildfire, like the, uh, the Marshall Fire in Colorado, a thousand homes destroyed back in 2021. Uh, XL Energy power lines were the culprit, um, yeah, and then in California, along the same lines, uh, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, they had failing lines that sparked several fires, uh, fires that killed, in one case, 85 people, uh, fires that, um, again, the company was, was sued and agreed to pay $55 million in penalties. So 
Yeah, some of these corporations are paying for those direct causes, but the, the you know where we really need to be pointing the finger is that these big fossil fuel companies who have known for decades what they're doing. I mean, Exxon knew back in the 70s that its product was causing climate change. And instead of doing anything about it, they lied. They hired PR firms to paint a picture that ignored the reality that they knew. If you want, um, if you want to hold anybody accountable and liable, it ought to be these companies that knew what they were doing was wrong and did it anyhow. And again, the, it's a direct connection. Global heating causes more fires. Boom. So what do you do about global heating? Well, um, uh, George Mumbaiat with The Guardian has a solution that I can't stand. And we might have to have another segment on this conversation. He thinks that um, we ought to be moving from raising food unsustainably on farms and moving into factories. I mean, he's also totally opposed to meat consumption in any shape or form. I, I'm going to have to save that for another conversation because I really want to dig into that. Um, it is so... It is so. It is. It is instinctually flawed. It is practically flawed. How do you manage? How do you? How do you envision managing factories in terms of energy, in terms of construction, in terms of maintenance? You know, there's no better place to grow food in terms of ease of management than the ground. All right, I got to make a comment about one more story that caught my attention. Um, the New York Times, again, the voice of the mainstream media. Um, says, quote, with its open plains and thousands of miles of wheat fields, Kansas is one of the windiest states in the U.S. That makes it a great place for turbines that capture the wind and convert it into electricity. But too few people live there to use all that power. Yes, inflection my own. Too few people live there. I mean, the same would be said about three-fourths of my home state, Iowa. You know, I'm sorry if, if you if you if you think that flyover country is just well you should put your energy sources and then then pump it all to your big cities. There is something fundamentally flawed about that, and this is an area where I think that you know, people across the political aisle in quote flyover country can probably unite and say this is really wrong. It's stupid. It's unfair. It's unjust. You can't just plop all of your energy resources where there are, quote, too few people and pump them, pump them to where there are, in our opinion, too many people. So, you know, this article goes on to talk about how um, in 2010, developers started planning a large power line project connecting Kansas with Missouri, Illinois, Indiana. And they wanted to move the clean energy. And again, wind has its problems. Let's be honest about that. It's not all 100% clean generated in Kansas from both wind turbines and solar panels to states with much bigger populations. That would let more communities replace planet-warming fossil fuels that have contributed to the kinds of wildfires and unhealthy air that have blanketed large swaths of, the nor of North America this week. Again, analysis of the problem spot on, but, but just glossing over details. Like, what goes into making these wind turbines? What's it like to have thousands and thousands of them dotting the landscape uh, <laughs> taking over farm ground. Um, what, are the, what, are, what is it like to put in these transmission lines that pump this energy to the big population centers? You know, yeah, if you want to see even less population in, in rural America, there's one way to do it. So they want, what they want to do is, is force this down everybody's throat by, 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 by fast-tracking how these decisions are made, taking away local authority. 
And, you know, if they could take away local authority, yes, they would get this accomplished. Anyway, these last two conversations, factories versus farms, wind transmission lines, we'll be having more talk about that in the future on this program. But I want to go to a short break. When I come back, Kathy Burns is going to join us. We're going to be talking about local supermarket foods and what you expect versus what you might get. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Clipsham asks that you use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. Examples of Mark's work can be found at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Hey, come on back to the Fallon Forum with us here, folks. Uh, thanks again to Gateway Marketing Cafe, our longtime anchor sponsor for this program. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, including Catholic Peace Ministry, founded in the 1980s to work for peace and justice. Catholic Peace Ministry is an independent nonprofit organization with no official ties to the Des Moines Catholic Diocese. All right, Kathy Burns joins me in the studio. Hello, Kathy. How are things? Hi, pretty good. So we've been um, talking about local foods, mm-hmm. but let's talk about the middleman, middle person, middle entity. Mm-hmm. The supermarket. The supermarket. And uh, the catchphrase, the the gimmicky thing, the word local uh, is used a lot. So we want to talk about what it really might mean instead of what you expect, uh, starting with words from a fella named Errol Schweitzer, who headed up grocery merchandising for the Whole Foods grocery chain from 2009 to 2016. He was quoted in a story in The Guardian he says, most of it is BS. <laughs> he used the more elaborate term. <laughs> I'm sure he Every did. retailer has a different def- definition of local. The original purpose of localization has gotten totally lost, and we agree. So local could mean anywhere on planet Earth? It really could. It really could. It could be local um, somewhere. Right. So, I mean, just think about what you're expecting. When you see the word local, you might think, for instance, that it means it's produced pretty close to where you're sure. buying it. Yeah, a few yeah. miles. Yeah. Well, yeah, you would think that for a sure. A few miles. According to Food Tank founder Danielle Nirenberg, local is usually uh, used to mean food grown within 100 miles of where it's sold and eaten. Okay, that's not too bad. Well, it's, the, it's, it's a stretch for what most of us, I think, would believe local to be. But, but the U.S. Department of Ag... Uh, says local in their uh, 2008 farm bill. Uh, local is within f- the same state or within 400 miles of where it's finally marketed. That's a big ouch wow, as okay. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. 
So yeah, you're not talking. You're talking about a, a, a definitely a, some kind of transportation happening there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so you also might be expecting that your food is going to be fresher, better tasting, healthier, meaning that it loses less nutrition. Uh huh. Um, and that that can be a mixed bag. Yeah. Uh, kind of depends on uh, when the produce was harvested before the travel even began. If it's coming from 100 or up to 400 miles, mm. uh, it, it's not really as fresh as you might be led to believe. How long it's allowed to sit on the grocery shelf before it's sold and how the food was packaged on the way to the store. Yeah. So I'm looking at some of the examples. looking at that Guardian article just now. And uh, some of the examples, I mean, a supermarket in Chicago, microgreens were called local. They came from about 45 miles away. Okay, that that's not so bad, right? I mean... And then the other example was mm-hmm. a market in Brooklyn, New York, where local eggs uh, came from 17 miles away. That's not so bad. Right. But they have another, they have another product in that same story about uh, somewhere in uh, a union market in Brooklyn has uh, food that are, foods that are labeled local that come from 270 miles away mm. in upstate New York. So they're that's they're claiming a, local. That's a bit of a push, I guess. It's a, it's hard to know, but I mean, I think the challenge is for people to ask, mm-hmm. consumers to ask. And uh, I know we when we well, in, in years past when I didn't grow so much of my own food, you know, we we would sometimes mm-hmm. go to farmers markets. But I would always ask, where's this from? Correct. There was one vendor at the Des Moines farmers market who suspiciously was selling tomatoes in May, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's a <laughs> and little so suspicious you'd ask, here. And occasionally you do We're find... In a colder a, climate. We do find somebody who grows tomatoes in a greenhouse. And, mm-hmm. you can, yeah, you can pull that off in May. But mm-hmm. there was one, one, guy, one uh, vendor in particular who they just bought their produce from, you know, it wasn't organic, it wasn't local at all. Mm-hmm. They just happened to be a local person selling it on the street. That's right. <laughs> You're buying it locally, and that's what people tend to yeah. make it mean. Yeah. Uh, you, you, the original trend for local was actually with uh, the book called uh, "The Omnivore's Dilemma" oh, by Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan. Great book. And uh, his, his it, that was really, uh, and then um, Bill McKibben had a book about about local foods too, and a lot of that was centered around sustainability. Mm-hmm. So when you buy local, you might also think you would would have uh, ensured environmental friendliness, uh, food that's produced without a lot of fossil fuel transportation, that mm. kind of thing, and and that might not also be true. Yeah. So. I mean, it, I think people who buy local tend to also assume it's organic, and it isn't all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it probably is most of the time, but it's really good to ask. Mm-hmm. You know? I'll always ask. Know your producer. That's uh, the bottom line, right? Yep, and be ready yeah. to maybe pay some higher costs for the word local, and if you don't ask, you, you may find it may not be local. Yeah. Hey, Kathy, thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm. Uh, folks, thanks to our guests today, Mark Klipsham and Peter Lumsdane. Also, thanks to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Detterman, Charles Goldman, Kathy Burns, and myself, Ed Fallon. Thanks also to our local small business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake, Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Catholic Peace Ministry, Physicians for Social Responsibility, Bold Iowa, and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Thanks also to the Des Moines Irish Session for our bumper music. Remember, your support for this program matters a lot. Go to the Fallon Forum website to learn more about how you can make a difference. 
Thanks again, folks, and we'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.